transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. experienced anything like what you're about to experience here today. Action! We need to talk. You had better start talking to me now. What do you see as the U.S. role in helping Germany navigate this so that this pipeline can't be leveraged for Putin? Right now, you have almost a disagreement more about tactics than on strategy when it comes to Nord Stream 2. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the other day, we're to use that um, uh, sorry, that's my dog colleague here. But have you seen data that definitively proves that these mask mandates uh, have worked? I'm highly confident, and I'm sure our health officials will, will, will could say it definitively. There's no question they've worked. Circumstances have changed. Case counts are declining. Also, the science has changed. The responsibility should shift from a government mandate to an individual responsibility by the family. I think we need to find other measures uh, and mandates. Mandates. <laughs> this pandemic has sucked. The winner is Adele. I really love being a woman and being a female artist. I do. I do. Jack Riccardi, 4 till 7, mm. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. Are you allowed to say that anymore? Are women allowed to say that anymore? Who are you to Who are you to take on that identity? Jack Riccardi on 550 and 1071 KTSA. I uh, I am white, but I identify as ruddy. And good afternoon. Welcome to our show. 210-599-5555. So Beto O'Rourke is running for governor. The polls don't look good. I mean, he'll probably be the Democratic nominee, but they don't look good in the general election this fall for Beto O'Rourke. He's trailing Greg Abbott by double digits in, in several recent polls. And he's doing something that I, I think is important to point out. Because some people know what he's doing, and some people may not know what he's doing. Now, Beto O'Rourke, we know him as the guy who ran against Ted Cruz in 2018 and came closer than people thought he would to Ted Cruz. So then he ran for president and did not come close at all. And now he's running for governor, and he's going to keep running till he can get elected to something. And I've said many times before, although I don't agree with Beto O'Rourke on anything, it might be better for us if we just find a job for him and and put him somewhere where we can't do too much harm. But in running for governor, he is reinventing, reimagining, changing his mind, changing his moods, the ever-changing moods of Beto O'Rourke on guns. He told the Texas Tribune recently, sounding like a very reasonable guy, I'm not interested in taking anything away from anyone. I want to defend the Second Amendment. Now, we have a lot of people moving to Texas every day. New Texans. And 2022 might be their first chance to vote in Texas. And they don't remember or know Beto's past. They just hear this guy who's a Democrat, who's, uh, you know, trying to be everybody's friend. 
He just wants to defend the Second Amendment. I can imagine a newly arrived, newly minted Texan going, finally a reasonable Democrat on guns. I like this guy. But we remember that when he was running in the 2020 presidential campaign, he bragged about, I'm coming for the AKs and the ARs. He was so bold about it that Joe Biden said, we're going to put you in charge of guns, which he didn't do. Probably forgot. So Beto O'Rourke keeps changing his position. Now, it's not going to hurt him with the Democrats because Democratic primary voters, most of them, and if this offends you, I'm sorry, but you know I'm right, they know that he has to say the stuff he's now saying about guns to have any kind of a chance against Abbott. So it's wink, wink, nod, nod. I'm not going to take anything away. I'm all about that Second Amendment. I love that Second Amendment. They know he doesn't mean it. They know that the 2019 Beto is the real Beto if there even is a real Beto. They know that's his real position on guns. But they understand you can't get elected in this state if you tell people what you're really going to do about guns. So, wink, wink, nod, nod. I'm all about the Second Amendment. It's pretty cynical, but any port in a storm, right? And they got to run with Beto O'Rourke because he raises a lot of money, and he brings a lot of money in from out of state. And there isn't another Texas Democrat... Uh, around whom the Hollywood Democrats and the Washington Democrats want to coalesce and want to write checks for. And so that's what he's doing. I um, I saw this story. Somebody sent it to me. I, I, I did not hear this on National Public Radio, but I went and looked at it. And National Public Radio had a story on their website yesterday about how you use emojis. And full confession, I'm not an emoji guy. But it said some people, some white people, um, choose the white thumbs up emoji because it feels neutral. But some academics argue opting out of, uh, racial signals indicates a lack of awareness about right privilege, meaning you should be using correct race emojis. And then it uh, goes on to interview a bunch of people about why they use the color emoji that they use. And that black people are offended when white people use brown thumb thumb up emojis. I, I, anyway, I don't want to bore you with all this, but um, I'm just wondering, in what universe are they living in? In what world are they living in? Gas is over $3 a gallon. The economy is crashing and burning around us. We um, we have a president who doesn't know where he is, or what time it is, what year it is. We're uh, we're really looking around the world like we're leaderless and clueless, and that's tempting and tantalizing the worst characters on the world stage, from Putin to China to North Korea to Iran. And we should be worried about the problem we have is which color thumbs up emoji you use. And then I got this thing. I'm on a uh, an email list for TripAdvisor because I've used TripAdvisor before, and I like TripAdvisor. But TripAdvisor sent me a thing um, about black travel. It says, Ready, Set, Rome. For Black History Month, we're celebrating... Black travel, 
And I, I didn't know that was a thing. I thought that black people traveled like the rest of us do. Can you help me out? Can any black travelers help me out? I'm serious, because I, I didn't know there was such a thing as black travel. Now, I know there, there has been in the past. I remember reading years and years ago there was a thing called the Green Book. If you were black in America in the Jim Crow era, you couldn't go anywhere without checking something called the Green Book. And it wasn't named that for its color. It was named that because the guy that wrote it was named Victor Green. And it was for people who were... And, and this was... This book was published from the 1930s, I think, all the way up until the 1970s. And it was for black travelers in the South so they could find hotels and motels and businesses that would actually um, welcome them or allow them in. They couldn't go. They couldn't travel the way white people did. They couldn't just check in anywhere they saw a vacancy. They couldn't just jump on a plane or a bus or a train because there was segregation. There were Jim Crow laws. And so the Green Book was how you got around if you were an African-American family in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. That's black travel. What the hell is black travel now? Is that a thing, or did did TripAdvisor invent that? Do these companies and these entities that are worried about the colors of emojis and how we travel... Do they really think that all black people are, are a monolith? Do they think that all black people think the same and have the same experiences? And, and, and are they reading the room right, do you think? 210-599-5555. Because I think, I said this yesterday about Black History Month and the awkward moments. Every Black History Month generates weird stories about some school that served fried chicken or watermelon or whatever on Black History Month, and then everybody's upset and offended, and they're like, well, we just meant well. We, we didn't know it would offend people, and we're so sorry. And, we'll... and I said, well, could we just stop doing that? Could we just, just you know, it... I mean, I'm not against Black History Month, but could we please just not be so clenched about it? And if you are not sure as a school or a company or an organization what to do, maybe asking the black people in your organization would be a good idea and put them in charge of it. Because maybe you're, maybe you're guessing wrong. And so I'm asking about the emojis. I'm asking about black travel. Help me out. Educate me. I don't, I don't understand how these are things. You know, I like the Nelson Mandela quote, and I hope I don't butcher it. But Nelson Mandela famously said, no one is born hating another color. You only can hate another color if you learn to hate. And then he said, if you can learn to hate, you can learn to love, because love is easier to learn than hate, or words to that effect. I I, I subscribe to that. So I'm asking, is, is the emoji thing real? Is black travel a real thing, or did somebody at TripAdvisor cook that up because they had to come up with something. Black History Month is already half over, and we've got to come up with something. All right, we'll do this. Are you proposing taking away their guns, and how would this work? I am. If it's a weapon that was designed to kill people on a battlefield, if the high-impact, high-velocity round, when it hits your body, shreds everything inside of your body because it was designed to do that so that you would bleed to death on a battlefield not be able to get up and kill one of our soldiers when we see that being used against children 
And in Odessa, I met the mother of a 15-year-old girl who was shot by an AR-15. And that mother watched her bleed to death over the course of an hour because so many other people were shot by that AR-15 in Odessa and Midland. There weren't enough ambulances to get to them in time. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against... That was Beto in 2019, but Beto now says, oh, no, 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 I, I don't intend to take anything away from anyone. No, I, I will defend the Second Amendment. Which Beto do you like? And you get what's going on here, right? This is the encoded messaging that Democratic primary voters totally get. They know he doesn't mean any of this, what he's saying now. Uh, but that he couldn't get anywhere near the governor's office unless he went on a tourism tour, unless he said what he's saying now. And, um, look, politicians lie a lot. They shade and spin a lot. I get that. But this guy, I mean, you got to be kidding me. So the only people that would possibly buy into this are the people that know he doesn't really mean it. I get that, but come on. 210-599-5555. Esteban is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Esteban, good afternoon. Gringo Robert Francis O'Rourke is a habitual liar. The fact that he campaigned as Beto when his parents were so loaded, so white, this guy makes Andy Millsap's son look like a piker as far as white privilege goes, and he campaigns under Beto. I mean, I mean, they got a, a seven-course meal for him would be a six-pack of Guinness and a baked potato. <laughs> So I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm half and half, and I know I passed for white, but well, don't know, be so sure. But I hear the whole nickname Beto. I mean, I call him Gringo yeah. Word because that's yeah. what he is. And so if he will lie about his name and mislead yeah. people about his ethnic background, uh, I don't trust him. Period. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's, he's Elizabeth Warren in a button-down shirt. Uh, what what color emojis do you use, uh, Esteban? I don't, you know, I, I don't care. <laughs> I just find a whole Black History Month display that I see at Target very patronizing. But I mean, you don't you don't worry about which color your thumbs up is when you send a thumbs up emoji. You don't select the one that you think best suits you, or because you said you're half I and do, half. So I, I I do the cheap yellow ones that are on Facebook. You're using the default emoji. Okay, there you go, Esteban. Thank you. So that was what the people were saying in this NPR story. If you just use the default emoji and you think that's neutral, that's white privilege. I don't think I, I'm, I'm inviting you to call in if I because I don't want to speak for you. I don't think black people in the real world care about this i could be wrong but i don't think they care i don't think they they may choose an emoji of their own skin color but they don't care what skin what what emoji i'm using or you're using or somebody else using i don't think so i don't think they are i don't think emojis are a thing in the real world in the npr world they are and man you'd love to know right like how do they come up is there a meeting do they have brainstorming? How do they come up with that? How do you figure out, okay, here are all the things in the world going on today. Let's do a story about emoji privilege. 210-599-5555. See, that's where I think 
There needs to be somebody in the room who goes, uh, excuse me, um, out here in the real world, nobody cares about this. Apparently there's no one who can say that or was willing to say that, maybe even able to say that. And, you know, if it's Black History Month, maybe this is a good time to stop making broad, sweeping statements about what black people find annoying or offensive. Because I just don't think you can. You can find a person who is offended by a particular thing. You cannot say all people of a certain race are offended by a certain thing. And I think in the Democratic Party, which is indistinguishable from NPR, their conception of African Americans is that they're all Ibram Kendi. Or they're all Patrice Cullors, or they're all the people at BLM. You know that's not true. I know that's not true. Either they really believe that, or they need that to be true for whatever story they're writing or narrative they're they're putting across. But wow! And then I got this thing from TripAdvisor about um, celebrating Black travel, and I have I have Black friends, like I'm sure you do, and they take trips. I have a friend of mine who travels a lot. I've never heard him say I'm taking a black trip. I don't don't know what that is. I know that there was a time in our history when to travel as an African-American was difficult and different, and you had to go to the green pages and figure out where, if anywhere, in a particular area, they'd put you up for the night, and that's a terrible thing. That's That's our history, and that's real. But I don't know what that means in 2022. And see, no one will ask... The questions I'm asking, because it sounds like if you're asking them, you are being insensitive. And I hope you know I'm not. I think you know I'm not. I'm trying to be logical. I'm trying to figure out, is there any there there to this stuff? So far, I don't think there is. So I'm going to use an analogy, and please, I know this is not an exact analogy, and I'm not equating these two things that I'm about to talk about, okay? Please know that. But one of the things people say when someone presents a false or um, fabricated story of sexual abuse, rape, or molestation, one of the things people always say is that makes it harder for the real victims. Your story and the exposure of it as a lie and the cheapening of that accusation inures the public, and then when a real accusation comes along... It's harder for that person to be believed, or it, it lessens the shock value of, of what they are crying out about. And I think that's true. I would agree with that. If you, if you fake a rape story, if you fake a molestation story, you've, you've made things harder for the real victims of, of those crimes. If we keep telling illusory, imaginary stories of racism then what are we doing to people that really experience racism? Because it is real, and there, there are still racists. There always will be. How is it better if we keep hoaxing racism, if we keep making up crises that don't exist? I don't know that the emoji thing is a real thing. I don't, I don't believe there are African Americans among us, and they, I, I, I would love to be corrected on this if I'm wrong, who are really put out by which color thumbs up you use. I don't think there are. I think that is created by elitists who want to talk about this problem but don't really know what the problem is. They want to do a story about racism, so they imagine that there is a 
an emoji crisis. And then black travel. I don't know what that is. That would be like saying there's black grocery shopping or there's black car washing or there's, I mean, I, there was a time when, yes, to travel as a black man or a black woman or a black family was vastly different and much harder and dangerous. And a man named Victor Hugo Green back in the 1930s, he was a postal carrier. And he started writing, because he traveled, he started writing a guidebook to places, whether they were motels or cafes or places along the major roads and highways of America, especially the South, where African-American people could park, could get gas, could eat, could um, stay for the night. And the reason a lot of black families were traveling by car at that time is because that was the only way they could travel. They couldn't they weren't allowed in a lot of the the mass transit uh, places the rest of the uh, the country was taking so they would travel by car and they would sleep in their car because they weren't sure they could find lodging when they got to a town or a city where they wanted to spend the night that's a real thing you can there are still people alive who remember doing that and experience that i don't i respect that and i'm sorry that that ever happened so the green book was a real thing if you want to talk about Black travel, that was it. By the 1960s, the Green Book became less and less necessary, and I looked it up during the break. It stopped publishing in 1967, because by then, thanks to not only civil rights laws, but just human progress, there were fewer and fewer places where you could not go or were not welcome. I'm sure there still were some. But... You know, it, it, that might be an interesting story to tell. There might be a whole generation or generations of Americans who don't know that was ever the case. But I don't know what travel, or rather, uh, TripAdvisor is talking about when they say we're celebrating black travel. Isn't that just travel? 210 599 5555. Had some emails. Uh, Cheryl wrote to me. Randall wrote to me. This, we're, we're black. We travel. We don't know what they're talking about. But see, I think this is, uh, this is overplaying the issue. This is trying to have a discussion, but inventing the, the, the pretext for the discussion. So we're going to invent an offense. We're going to invent uh, something that is wrong, uh, that people are uh, suffering with, just as a person would make up a story about being assaulted. And when you do that, you're not providing a service to others. You're doing a disservice to others. And I think there's a lot of this right now. Jack Riccardi right now, 210-599-5555. We're talking about everything from Alamo Plaza to uh, racial emojis to black travel and more. And Jerry is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Jerry, good afternoon. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, My name is Terry. Oh, Carrie, I'm I'm very sorry. Uh Yeah, I just want to say that I just think these people coming up with these crazy emoji ideas have lost their minds because I just use whatever emoji pops up. I don't care if it's green or blue or purple or orange. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. It's Um, ridiculous. I have a lot of, 
Okay, that doesn't make me racist. I have a no. lot of black friends, tons of them. Yeah. I, I um I, this is this is an invented problem so that they can uh, give us another lecture about how superior they are on race. It's not it's not in the real world. This isn't a real thing. That's that's exactly it. Not to mention the fact that most emojis the, the default color is bright yellow. None of us are bright yellow. <laughs> Nobody is. So aren't we all being we're all being uh, victimized, right? Right. We've all been done a wrong. Thank you, Carrie. Sorry, I got your name wrong. I apologize. 210-599-5555. Can't read, can't hear. Um, other than that, I'm doing great. Um, Rand Paul says Democrats have overplayed their hand with COVID. That's why things are suddenly adjusting, changing. That's why the governors of blue states are rushing to the microphones to announce they're lifting their rules and their edicts. Uh, This is what he said in an interview on Fox last night, cut number seven. You know, I think it's no longer a right-left issue. There may have been more of us on the right not liking the government mandates, but I think now you're finding parents of children, whether they're left of center, in the center, independents, who really don't like the idea of just forcing children to wear masks when the science don't doesn't really indicate that the masks are working. Even the CDC admits the cloth masks aren't working. You see kids outside huddled in the cold eating their sandwiches. You see kids playing outside in masks. So I think it is bringing right and left together. And I don't think it's going to. I think in the end, the Democrats have really overplayed their hands on the mandates because they're going to lose their populace. They're going to use their public. Uh, so I think this is a turning point. I think it's really getting to the point where the science is clear that the bulk and the vast majority of the mass of people wearing have no uh, difference, make no difference in the trajectory of the virus. So, yeah, I think that, I think ultimately Democrats are going to lose the public, and if, if they haven't already lose the public, lost the public, I think they're getting there. You know, um, he, makes an, he makes a number of points, but one of the interesting ones is that what really blurred the, the distinction about masks and mandates was children. That when it was just adults, people could organize themselves around this as Democrats and Republicans and liberals and conservatives and Trump voters and non-Trump voters and what have you. But um, the, the, the moment, and it wasn't a moment, but you know what I mean, the, 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 the hinge mo- point or the turning point of people seeing kids in masks in ridiculous situations, playing their wind instruments with masks on for a concert or having to eat their lunch outside in the freezing cold or having to sit on the floor of the cafeteria because somehow sitting on the floor uh, protects them from COVID, but sitting at the tables at ca- in the cafeteria would expose them to COVID. All of this nonsense. And then, and then seeing politicians do photo ops with masked children while not wearing masks, I think that was the moment when we stopped being conservatives and liberals and just started being parents and as i said yesterday when two people who are both parents meet that is their most powerful connection not that they're both catholic not that they're both hispanic not that they both cheer for the cowboys the thing that that connects people is when you find out that other guy or that other gal is also a parent And if we would react to more things that way, if we would look at things through our most important responsibility, your most important job is not to be a good Trump voter or to be a good Democrat 
Your most important job is to be a good parent. And this issue brought that home to people. I hope it's I hope it's the beginning of more of that. And um, and he made that point. He said, you know, it's one thing to do this with adults. It's another thing, Rand Paul said, to do this with kids. Cut number eight. Listen to this. But, I mean, it is. It is all theater at this point. And if it were just adults being stupid, that would be fine. You have a right to be stupid in a free country, but you don't have a right to force this on children. And it is really, really sad. And somebody's got to stand up, whether it's putting your semi in the middle of a town and honking the horn or whatever, or whether it's parents going to a school board meeting. These people will never let go of our freedoms or our children if we do not push back. You know what else is interesting right now? I agree with them on that. Um... Right now, you have another standoff or divide, which doesn't get talked about very much. And that is that you have the Biden administration, so you have Team Joe, which includes the CDC and the FDA and Fauci and Jen Psaki, right? And they're saying masks are still important. I'm sorry, we still our recommendation is masks for everyone over the age of two. But you have blue state governors saying, nope, it's over. This is it. End of the month, next week, Monday, it's over. Now, those states are moving on, and they're not moving on at the, at the direction of Team Biden. They're moving on in spite of Team Biden. And I point this out because we, we know why they're doing it. Their, their political hides are on the, on the line. Biden doesn't have to run for anything in 2022, but a lot of these governors and local people do. They're on the ballot, literally. And it may be too late for them, but they're hoping maybe you won't remember their last two years of tyranny when they were like a little Napoleon in their state capital. They're hoping you'll remember them making their big smiley announcement about how, hey, everybody, we're giving you your lives back, as Congressman Maloney said yesterday. We're giving you your lives back. I don't even think Marie Antoinette thought of that line. I don't think the biggest, most elitist tyrant or royal pain in the ass in, in Europe's history ever ever used a line like that. That That's even better than let them eat cake, right, if she even said that. I mean, we're giving you your lives back is the ultimate tone-deaf, we-really-are-better-than-you uh, statement. Does that mean that every time they make a rule or a law that is taking our lives away from us? I guess it does. I guess they've they've kind of figured that out. Or maybe we have figured that out. But anyway, but but the interesting thing about the states is they're also practicing federalism. So when these governors are announcing things that are not at the behest of the CDC and not in keeping with the White House direction, They're reminding us again of how this whole thing is supposed to work. This is what it's supposed to be. The states came first. The states formed the federal government. The states were assured when they formed the federal government that the federal government would never, ever, 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 ever get in their business or override them or dictate to them. That's the only reason we have a constitution. It had to be adopted and approved in a convention in 1788. And the, the number one objection from the states to the Constitution, before they grudgingly approved it, was exactly this point. So these Democratic governors, in their own way, are reinforcing federalism. Remember that in the Obama years, it was Republican governors 
who would sue the, the federal government or try to um, uh, basically nullify a policy or an order from the federal government. And now you're seeing Democratic governors do it with a Democratic administration in power. It's interesting. So here's an update, uh, an update on uh, Biden crack pipes. <laughs> it's just, just, you know, who thought we'd be saying that sentence two years ago? Um, yesterday it was reported by the Washington Free Beacon and re uh, repeated by many news organizations that as part of a harm reduction package coming through the HHS, uh, they were going to give safe smoking kits and safe hygiene kits for people to have safe sex and safe drug use uh, in the streets of our major cities. Jen Psaki took pains to say it didn't necessarily mean uh, that they were giving out crack pipes. The HHS people said, we never said that. The Washington Free Beacon is standing by their story. It's kind of splitting hairs. It, it appears that the Free Beacon did get the story right. It looks like HHS is attempting to say, we never said that. But again, when reporters are able to produce their notes and their transcripts of conversations, um, there's usually something, you know, fairly stable about that. But here's what I think really happened. Um, I think this probably was in a plethora of details. In other words, these these kits are real. And Jen Psaki went on and on about how they include lip balm and alcohol wipes and all these other innocuous things. And probably in the plethora of details, somebody said something they weren't supposed to say or included something that it that hadn't been signed off on or whatever and now they're saying oh no no there won't be there won't be free crack pipes um they got caught and they got caught i think not with the free crack pipe line but the whole look of this the whole angle on this is wrong now there is something called harm reduction there is a philosophy there is a school of thought they didn't invent it it's been around a long time that says drug addiction's real there are there are people living in every city there are people living amongst us there are people you know even if you don't know this about them who are living functioning drug addicts and the theory or the philosophy of harm reduction as i understand it i'm not an expert is that you can't just be against drug use You've got to find safe off-ramps and mitigation measures for people while they're addicted. No, we don't want to keep them addicted. We don't want to help them be addicts. But but it's important that they don't get HIV or it's important that they don't hurt themselves or it's important that they don't commit a crime in support of their habit or things like that. That's, that's mitigation. But right now, America's big cities are falling apart. People don't want an administration whose focus is mitigation. They want to know that they can walk down the street without somebody coming up behind them and hitting them in the head with a baseball bat or pushing them onto the the tracks of a incoming subway train or um, randomly, you know, sucker punching a little old lady on the sidewalk. That's what has to be dealt with. And and even a bigger question, why are there so many more homeless people in America's big cities? 
We've done everything. The government has gotten every dollar they asked for and more. We've consistently and constantly, even under Republican presidents, spent more and more and more on the so-called safety net. We've done this for decades. We've been doing it longer than you've been alive, or I've been alive. The real question is not to give them crack pipes or not to give them crack pipes. The real question is, why does San Francisco have twice as many homeless people as it had six years ago? And if you're not interested in that, then I'm going to say you don't really care about people or what happens to them, and you're not trying to solve this problem. This is a question anybody can ask, and this is a question everybody has to answer. Uh, There's a story uh, today about how they're trying to encourage people in California to, um, and this is uh, emanating from a city in California called Richmond, which is near San Francisco, as they have more and more of a homeless problem, uh, government agencies and charities are now urging people, private citizens, to take in homeless people. They're advocating that you step up and let a homeless person or a homeless family live in your home. And, of course, people are flipping out. Now, before I say anything else about this, you you do understand that this is literally WWJD, right? But it's not the government's job to advocate for charity. It's not the government's job to say, we've failed, so now you need to step up. If if a person wants to open their home to a homeless person, I think that's incredible. But that's up to them. That is not because the government asked them to, wants them to, gave them an incentive to. No, no, no. The government has nothing to do with that decision. That is a moral, spiritual investment that person's making, and at great risk, right? How dare the government, which denies the existence most of the time of the Christian God, suddenly turn around and now say, well, we're just, we're just uh, trying to be, you know, we're just saying this is what Jesus would want you to do. How dare they? How dare the government that pays for and defends abortion? How dare the government that that makes you know the public practice of Judeo-Christian faith harder and harder now suddenly have a policy that says, you know, you ought to really do like Jesus would do. So again, I'm not telling you not to do it. And you'd have my unstinting admiration if you did do it, open your home to a stranger. But that's not... That's not policy-making. That's not problem-solving. And again, we're, not, we're, we're dancing all around the biggest question of all. In the richest nation on earth, why are there more homeless people than ever? And the reason we are dancing and avoiding that question is because the answer points back to government. It's inescapable that every decision they've made, maybe not every, most every decision that the federal government has made about poverty, about home, uh, about uh, housing, 
about families, about incarceration and criminal justice reform, has exploded in our faces, not theirs, but ours. You know, the, the, the expression, it explodes in your face, means you did something and you bore the brunt of your bad decision. They make the decision, but then we bear the brunt of it. They spin it around right before it explodes and aim it at us. So the homeless crisis they want us to help them solve, they made. 210-599-5555. How do you feel about that? And and again, this is on a, we'll go into more detail, but th- th- there's a uh, town in California that is setting up a program to place homeless people with landlords and private citizens, and the idea being we just have too many, so you need to help us by taking them in. 210-599-5555. Now, the poll question today is prompted by this. Um, San Antonio Express News is reporting that um, the Texas General Land Office has convinced Ripley's Haunted Adventures, the Guinness, I forget the exact name of it, I think it's the Guinness um, Book Museum or something like that, and one other business, the Guinness World Records Museum, and there's one other tourist trap kind of thing there in that building across the street from the Alamo. They've uh, convinced them to get out, to close, to give up their lease early because they want to put a museum uh, in that building as part of the Alamo Plaza uh, project. And so we're asking you on the JR poll, are you glad that Ripley's is leaving Alamo Plaza? I was surprised that uh, there's actually a lot of people who are saying they really like that museum. I, I used to take people there when I would, when people would visit me from out of town, especially when I was first living here, a lot of my friends would come down to see what was, what's this San Antonio all about? Why? I want to see why you moved here. So they'd come down and they'd stay with me for a while and we'd go do all the things you do when you have an out of town visitor, right? We'd go to the Riverwalk and we'd go to Six Flags and we'd go to, and we'd see the Alamo. And, and, um, I have to tell you, everyone I ever brought to, to the Alamo from other parts of the country, these are all people that had never been to San Antonio before. They all couldn't believe that there was a Ripley's across the street from the Alamo. Now, maybe you never thought of it because it's been there forever and you just don't think twice about it. You don't go down there. I understand that. But their reaction was always, how does that make any kind of sense? I mean, you just wouldn't see that in any other city with any other comparable historic site or monument or memorial or whatever you want to call it. You just wouldn't wouldn't see a Ripley's or a... Hooters or a, <laughs> just seemed very weird. And I felt that way too. I just thought it was very discordant and odd. I'm not, I'm not trying to be a snob, but it did, just didn't belong there directly across the street. And you know, when you hear people debate about the, 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 the cenotaph and the, the history and, and handling it properly and respecting it and not reimagining it or putting political correctness on it. I don't know. And then you look across the street and there's Ripley's. This is bizarre. Are you glad to see Ripley's getting out of Alamo Plaza? Sorry if that's one of your favorite places to go, but I, I, I don't think it ever really was a good fit there. I'm glad they're leaving. And I know there's going to be a lot of PC nonsense with this new Alamo plan, but I, I am excited to see this museum and 
I'm excited to see that whole area get to be more about the Alamo and not about, you know, tourist trap stuff. So hopefully that'll be the case. Um, yeah, the homeless crisis in San Francisco and a lot of other cities is so bad that in uh, one town in California, they're urging people to take the homeless into their homes. And they're offering money. And they're telling landlords, um, you know, we'll incense you uh, if you do this. So they're uh, they're basically saying, you know, this is basically like saying we're gonna we'll we'll pay you or we'll pay the rent. But whether it was paid or out of the goodness of your heart, do you see how screwed up this is? They create the problem, the welfare state government. Then they collect massive crippling taxes with the promise over decades that they will solve the problem. And now the problem is yours. And you should feel good about fixing it. That's We've come full circle. Cindy's at 210-599-5555 in KTSA. Cindy, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jack. Thank you for taking my call. It's interesting that just today I watched a video on the Daily Mail of a homeless man who was saying that the government is paying him $620 to stay on the street and $200 in food stamps. Wow. Yes, I saw that. And um, just to point out, the Daily Mail is pretty accurate. They actually have mm-hmm. more American news, you know, from the United States mm-hmm. than we report here in the United States. Cause yeah, I found I'm it pretty reliable. Yeah. And uh, you would not believe the true stories that are there. And this man was very, uh, and, and he's also given Narcan, and he said he has saved several people. And that's supplied by the government, too. They supply him with Narcan. And they were selling fentanyl maybe 10, 15 feet from where he worked, where he was sitting. It, it would be interesting for you to actually read that because, or see that okay. video today. Okay. Because oh. it, it just spells out exactly why they're there. They're getting, this guy was getting 820 complete. So. I'll t- I will take a look for that. Um, what, what, what do you think about having people uh, bring the homeless into their homes? Um, that's ridiculous. And what they should do is what Hawaii did. Um, I don't know how far back it, it was. It could be uh, looked up. They actually found the people, asked them where their place of birth is, what state, and um, put them out on an airplane and uh, put them back to the state that they were from, city and state. Oh. Well, we're too busy. We're too busy flying. Um, we're too busy flying <laughs> illegal immigrants around the country to do that right now, Cindy. We don't have. Yes. We, don't have, we don't have time for that. <laughs> but I appreciate your I call. That's interesting. I will look that up in the Daily Mail. Um, and I do read that. Um, yeah, I, I, I just I think it's a common pattern. Uh, government creates a problem, promises to fix it, collects uh, confiscatory amounts of tax dollars. Uh, when that isn't enough, yells at you that you're greedy for not paying more and charges more collects more then at a certain point as if they had not done any of those things as if that 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 had never happened that was all down the memory hole uh they come back at 
you or at um, private sector charities or whatever. Now, I'm not saying that it would be terrible or crazy for you to open your home. I mean, that might be a, a beautiful, uh, incredibly generous thing for you to do, and I'm sure there are people doing it. So I'm not. This isn't me saying don't ever let a homeless person. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that is not an appropriate government policy. That's not. That's not how it works. We've given them way too much money for them to now say, "Well, whoa, 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 it's out of our hands." There's a debate in the Senate. Uh, they're calling it the Gas Prices Relief Act. And it's a bill. Now, that sounds good, right? I paid 320 for gas this morning. It's a bill. The Democrats are sponsoring it. It would temporarily suspend the federal gas tax for the rest of the year. It wouldn't strike down the federal gas tax. It would simply suspend it for the rest of what happens to be a midterm election year. Surprise, surprise. Why don't they just suspend it every election year? <laughs> that would be that would make as much sense. Have you ever heard anyone say these gas taxes are so high? No. Gas is almost double, almost double what it was just five years ago. That's not the gas tax. The gas tax is like 20 cents. That is the supply. That is a federal government that is trying to drive people toward renewable green energy, that is demonizing fossil fuels, that thinks energy independence is something only right-wing white men talk about or care about. Imagine how stupid they must think we are. Imagine how how incredibly childlike they must think we are. We'll just give them this little gift. We'll suspend the gas tax. They'll see their gas prices go down a bit. They'll associate that with our with us, with our party. And they won't be mad at us come November. That's like a toddler who knocks over a lamp and breaks it. Before mom sees, he tries to stand it up on the table and make it look like it's not broken. I mean, that's what these people are doing with a lot of things. Uh, Thousands of new Texans every month moving here from all over. The 2022 election might be their first time voting in Texas. I wonder if they're on to Robert Beto O'Rourke. Because the 2022 model of Beto O'Rourke sounds very reasonable. He sounds like the Democrat you've been waiting to hear from. I'm not interested in taking anything away from anyone. I will defend the Second Amendment, he said recently. I just want to protect everybody's rights. Oh, but that Beto O'Rourke isn't the real Beto O'Rourke. That Beto O'Rourke is saying that with a wink in his eye and a little catch in his voice and it's you know the the democratic primary voters and I'm not I'm not hating on them they know he doesn't mean that when he says it he can say it 
and not take any heat or lose any support for saying it because they know he has to say it if he's going to get anywhere near the governor's office. I just want to make sure our new Texas voters don't think that the 2022 Beto O'Rourke is the real one. The real one was the 2019 one who got all carried away with himself on the presidential debate stage and said, you bet I'm coming for your ARs and your AKs. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. Hell yes. That's how he establishes that he's a regular guy. Hell yes. Is that how you blue-collar guys do it? Hell yes. (laughs) So um, it's not even a flip-flop. It's just a little sugar coating so you can, you know, pull the little flim-flam, the little razzmatazz. What did uh, President Obama used to call it? The little uh, okey-doke? Yeah, okay. By the way, no one ever says this, but the history of gun control is incredibly racist. Gun control and the war on drugs have followed a parallel path for decades in this country. So both drug control and gun control criminalize conduct that erodes civil liberties and contributes to mass incarceration. And that would be bad enough if it just did that to all people equally. Uh, But the drug war, we know, has had a disparate effect and has had a much higher incarceration rate on black people that's why progressives have turned on the drug war that's why they've turned again that's why they want to decriminalize and 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 legitimize things that were that were in the bullseye of federal law enforcement for decades across both parties presidencies but what they don't say what they won't face up to is that gun control the war on guns if you will has the same effect as the war on drugs You know, there was a famous interview that John Ehrlichman, remember Nixon's main advisor, became famous during Watergate. John Ehrlichman did an interview many, many years later after Nixon had died um, in which he admitted that the war on drugs was an attempt to delegitimize Vietnam War protesters. They were trying to, in the public's mind, connect and tie together pot and hippies and black people. And he said in the interview, I'm going to read a quote, by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. So John Ehrlichman. But for whatever reason, we're not having that same reckoning with the war on guns. There's a long tradition in this country of black ownership of guns. The struggle against slavery, the incredibly dangerous and violent 
decades of Reconstruction, and then the Jim Crow era, and the Civil Rights Movement. All your major civil rights leaders, from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King and all the ones in between, W.E.B. Du Bois, all of them, heartily endorsed the right to bear arms, heartily endorsed that there be a gun in in the African-American home. That that was the only thing that head of the household could be sure about as far as protecting his family. Martin Luther King, at the height of the violence directed against him, applied for a gun permit in Alabama. They had bombed his house and threatened him and his family repeatedly. And the county sheriff, a Democrat, said no. He wasn't anti-gun. He was anti-Martin Luther King. Denying Martin Luther King a gun was knowingly putting Martin Luther King in greater peril. He knew that. That's why he said no. And it was also a, a, a pretext in the Jim Crow era to go into a black home, find an unlicensed or Ill, illegal gun, and break up that family and put the father in jail. So they were they were using the the enforcement of and the writing of gun laws in an overtly racist way. That is a direct line to the gun control debates we have today. The people saying it would never they would they would be terribly offended at what I'm saying. They don't want this history. They don't want this association, but it's true. And you know, this this is all through our history, the famous Dred Scott decision that is so often uh mentioned, in fact Joy Reid mentioned it the other night. In the famous or infamous Dred Scott decision, which was one of the worst moments in American history, 1857 Supreme Court decision, the then Chief Justice made the argument that we could never recognize Negroes, as he called them, as citizens, or else they would be entitled to all the privileges and rights of citizens. And he mentioned specifically, do you really want them to be able to carry arms and and bear arms and own guns? And that's why we can't do this. No one today believes that black people have a different right to bear arms than white people do. But when you make the argument that it isn't really a right or it's evolved or it didn't mean what they said it meant back at the founding, that has a disparate effect on people of color. And look, that's not me saying that. That's people who really are their own line of defense saying that. That's people who live in places and communities where the police don't go or don't show up often or, or or quickly. When you have to live in the midst of constant night after night drug crime and gang violence, it's obscene to be told that you wanting to have a gun in your home and defend yourself and defend your family, that that is somehow some some weird Republican white guy thing. I wish that um, the gun control people would get called on this because I think they ought to own the whole history of their argument. They try to break off just a piece of it, like after there's an incident involving a gun, when everybody's emotions are up. And there's a famous saying, if you legislate in haste, you will repent at will or at leisure. And it's true. They try to get in the emotion of the moment. Oh, this is why we need new gun laws or a new gun law. 
But if you look at our whole history, gun control is just as corrosive and just as much of a failure as drug control has been. I thought this was interesting. Um, She's the uh, doctor who discovered the Omicron strain of COVID. Uh, Dr. Angelique, uh, I think you say it, uh, Ketsi or Coetzee. She is a South African uh, doctor, epidemiologist. She uh, said in an interview in a German paper that she was under a great deal of pressure not to say that the Omicron variant was mild, that although it was highly transmittable, it did not lead to serious disease in most people. The course of the Omicron illness is pretty mild. She was under pressure not to say it. Now, she is a South African doctor, but it wasn't the South African government that was putting that pressure on her. In fact, she says they didn't tell her to shade or color her reporting at all. She says she got pressure from the U.S. and the U.K. and the European authorities and the WHO not to say what she knew, what we now all know about the Omicron variant. I think that's very interesting. We got stacks and stacks of wax and wax. We got to pick the click the ones to watch the oldies but goodies and oldies but gooies. We got the top 700 records. Next week it'll be a golden oldie. Let's hear it. All right, it's 6.06 on 550 and 1071 KTSA. And we welcome back to the program on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line, Mighty John Marshall, the records guy, with his website, moneymusic.com. And Mighty John, good evening to you. How are How is everything? Well, everything is fine, Jack. Hope it is with you, too. You ready for uh, Valentine's weekend, Super Bowl weekend, all that? <laughs> all, all at the same time, yes. <laughs> all right. Uh, for folks that haven't heard him before, when uh, Mighty John's on our show, he not only has a great record collection, but he is one of the most recognized authorities on what is collectible and what collectors are paying for collectible albums and 45s and so forth, and has a price guide you can get through the website, moneymusic.com, with the prices of over a million uh, different records. So you might have an old record or two hanging around, wonder if it's worth something. You can call us right now and we can talk about that with him at 210 599 We're also going to count down 10 records worth $100 or more. Now, um, for folks that haven't heard you before, what are the categories what, that, that most collectible records fall into? Well, basically there are five categories. Rock and roll, country, blues, soul, and jazz. Uh, overall, certainly rock and roll is the number one category, and most of the value in rock and roll is in the Elvis era, the Beatles era, and getting up into the 70s as well. But uh, collectors generally prize those years the most, except for blues. If you have blues records prior to World War II in a category known as pre-war blues, they are extremely collectible. Many of them are going for as much as $20,000. Hmm. That would take care of the blues right there. You, you would, <laughs> That's right. You would not have the blues anymore. Um, all right, 210-599-5555. If you want to 
uh, call and ask about a record uh, that you have. Um, don't be surprised if uh, you're surprised by what John tells you. I know we always have people that think, well, this was a huge hit or this was a huge band, but that may not have anything to do with whether or not that record is collectible, right? You know, everything is based on supply and demand in any form of collectible, whether it's records, baseball cards, comic books. It's only worth what somebody is willing to pay. All right, so we're going to take those calls. We're going to count down, starting with number 10, the 10th biggest record worth $100 or more, is Chicago. Yeah, this is kind of unique. Chicago went disco for one particular record called Street Player. They received a lot of criticism because their fans didn't like them going disco. Mm. But the 45 Street Player from 1979, currently up to $100. All right, then. Um, number nine, another very well-known name, Ray Charles. He has a lot of records that are worth money. This one called Country and Western Meets Rhythm and Blues. Now, if you have the album, and it's in mono, it's up to 125 But if it's in stereo, it's up to $175. Less of them released in stereo, and thus the value is higher. Hmm. So mono, 125 stereo, 175 Right. Um, and and I, I liked the era when albums were just named what they were. Like, yeah. <laughs> this, this is an album of country and western meets rhythm and blues, or this is, you know, so-and-so singing the songs of such-and-such. Such. Now it has to have, like, a an abstract name, right? Like it right. Doesn't, doesn't tell you what's in it. Um, <laughs> like Joni Mitchell's been actually. in the news lately. She's uh, <laughs> Joni Mitchell is one of those artists that's joined the Spotify protest, and she's at yeah. number eight on your countdown. She's very collectible. A lot of her albums are collectible. This was one of her best-known albums called Blue. Current value up to $200, and we say up to because, of course, condition, not only the vinyl but also the cover, very important. Now, I know with um, with 45s, you'll tell us that uh, often there's more value in the, or always, I guess, there's more value in the picture sleeve than in the actual 45 record itself, right? Absolutely. With an album, unless otherwise indicated, it's a 50-50 split in value between the cover and the final. But with a 45, it's more, more the, more the, is, is it more the picture sleeve because those were just much more delicate and they're less likely to have survived the times? Exactly. Less of them survive, so the value is higher. As we go on with the countdown, we'll give you a good example of that. All right. Um, 210-599-5555. We're going to count down some more of these and take your calls for Mighty John. And Paul is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Hi, Paul. How you doing, Jack? Doing um, good. You got a question for John? Yes, I do. I have a set of picture discs for the Beatles. They're, I don't know the date, but they do say a rare interview with the Beatles. And there's four discs, and it comes well, in a plastic, clear, plastic, uh, like yeah. a... Um, yeah. Well, there are a few that are legitimate, and there are others that are counterfeits. But all the legitimate ones, like uh, there's one for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely House Club Band, uh, they're in the 30 to $35 price range. They're really not extremely collectible. And basically the reason is they are reissues of original releases. Even though they're picture discs, they're reissues. So originals in the 30 to $35 price range, the counterfeits uh, would have no collectible value. Okay, because I've never seen them and I've researched it and I cannot find anything on this. Um, yeah. They're if made by... Um, let me tell you, uh, back 
back-to-back records, London? Yes, no. So that's not a legitimate label, so it would have no established value. That doesn't mean that somebody wouldn't want to buy them. It just means that as a collector, as an appraiser, I can't put a value on something that's considered basically illegal. Mm-hmm. But the uh, Sergeant Pepper mm-hmm. one, if you have that uh, from uh, Capital or Apple, would be up to 30 to $35. All right, Paul, good okay. question. Thank you. Appreciate your call tonight. 210-599-5555. Bob is on the radio with Mighty John. Hi, Bob. Hi. What have you got, Bob? Uh, well, I had an old album that was called The Two Sides of Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> he actually had five different albums. And generally, to a record collector, uh, they're up to around 40 to $50 each. To somebody that's a Trekkie, uh, they can be worth more, but I can only give you the value through the eyes of a record collector. Oh, that's wonderful, because I uh, it was a couple of years ago, but I sold it for 100 bucks to a Trekkie. Yeah, there you go. Excellent. Now, now Shatner has some <laughs> records out, too, but his are not worth anything. I'm sorry to say. You did, you did very well with that, Bob. Good transaction. Uh, Russell is on 550 and 1071KTSA. The phone number is 210-599-5555 with Mighty John Marshall, the records guy. Hi, Russell. Hi, how you doing? Good. What do you got? Uh, yeah, I actually have a, it's called a Kiss the Originals uh, 1 and 2. I believe they came out in 1977, 78-ish. Uh, it's, well, uh, re- oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, actually, there should be three in the set. Kiss the Originals is a repackaging of the first three albums and it came yeah. with army uh, kiss army trading cards and other inserts if you have all of that uh, then it'll yeah. sell up the set would sell up to around five hundred dollars okay yeah great i, I purchased uh, both of them for 400 apiece for the the uh one and two yeah so good yeah kiss uh, can be quite collectible and i think they'll be more collectible as time goes by okay russell great. good question thank you sir appreciate having you we're going to talk about that one coming up here. Mighty John Marshall, the records guy with us on 550 and 1071 KTSA, San Antonio's news talk station. And uh, we're taking your calls for Mighty John about collectible vinyl. If you have a record, an album, a 45 uh, that you want to ask him about, uh, make the call right now, 210-599-5555. Uh, up at number seven on your countdown, John. Is one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite sixties oldies, "Incense yeah, and Peppermints" wonder... by Strawberry Alarm Clock. Yeah, great record, "Incense and Peppermint." Now the values for the album: uh, stereo copy up to one hundred and fifty, mono copy up to two hundred dollars. "Incense and Peppermint" on the Uni record label. All right, uh, number six. The well, you teenagers know, very collectible. Yeah. Uh, oh. Frankie Lyman, the Teenagers, big hit for them, of course. Why do fools fall in love? That album, the Teenagers, featuring Frankie Lyman, currently up to three hundred dollars. And the Beatles at number five. Well, here's our case of where the picture sleeve makes all the difference. Name the forty-five. I'll cry instead. If you have it with the picture sleeve, up to four hundred dollars. Three hundred and fifty of that, just for the picture sleeve. Hmm. And so many of those do not survive. I mean, we're talking there about 
you know that that's that's almost sixty years ago. Right, really, huh? And I, I mean, I have records a lot younger than that where the picture sleeve is in tatters. You know, so <laughs> well, um, our producer has a so. our producer has uh, the forty five of paperback writer backed with rain and the original picture sleeve. What would that be? Uh, paperback writer. Yeah, on Capitol. Yeah. Uh, well, if he has it with the uh, sleeve, it's up to $250. Oh, there you go. Yeah. good. That, there's your Valentine's Day, Don, right there. <laughs> um, another one I love. I love Bobby Fuller 4, I Fought the Law. There's some great covers of that, too, but they did it first. Uh, and that's at number four on your countdown. Yeah, the collectors want them, of course, on the original label, Exeter Records, Bobby Fuller 4, I Fought the Law. Uh, on Exeter, up to $500. Most of them are on Mustang Records and worth up to $40. All right, so that, that matters. Uh, let's get to some calls here from Mighty John. 210-599-5555. Brenda is on KTSA. Hi, Brenda. Hello. I have, um, my dad wants me to get rid of about 50 albums. Mainly it's stuff from the 60s, um, uh, musicals and things like that. But he has a lot of Herp Albert and the Tijuana Brass. Yeah. Well, not too collectible. Herp Albert, great artist. Uh, but most of the early albums, like The Lonely Bull, uh, in that 25 to $30 price range. So he's not extremely collectible. Thank you. You're and it sounds like if Brenda has a lot of records, and I know some people, you know, John might have just one or two, but right. if you have a lot of records, that's where that price guide would be a nice thing to have, and you could sit at your own leisure and, and figure out which, if any of them, you should sell individually, right? Yes, and we also put out a directory of buyers if you're looking to sell. Right, that's all at moneymusic.com. Tim is next on the radio with John Marshall. Hi, Tim. Hi there. I have the uh, Boston Picture Disc uh, first album. Yes. Uh Wish I had good news for you, but it's up to around thirty-five to forty dollars. Well, that is good news. But you know, originally it sold for two ninety-eight, so you know that's pretty good news. But it's not extremely collectible. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you, Tim. Appreciate the call. Let me get to uh, uh, Dev on KTSA. Hi, Dev. Hey, how's it going there? It's going now. Uh, I, I don't know if they're even worth anything, but I've had them. I, my parents had them, and they gave them to me. I don't know why, but there were some old Richard Pryor and uh, Eddie Murphy uh, albums that they did. They're coming in. They were on albums. And I have, like, about three of them. Uh, they've been, you know, in the covers forever, so I just never opened them. But I didn't know if they were even worth anything or not. So. What about comedy, John? What about that? Well, you know, collectors, record collectors don't, well, don't like, they don't really appreciate spoken word records. Collectors are looking for music. So comedy records fall into that spoken word category. And of the artists that you mentioned, generally in the 10 to $15 price range. Okay, that's what I was figuring. Yeah. Thanks, Dev. Appreciate the call. Um, let's see, Skip is on KTSA at 210-599-5555. Hi, Skip. Hi, how's it going? I have uh, three records set at the old 78 speeds. It's uh, Leopold Stokowski. Uh, it's uh, Peter and the Wolf, uh, and it's Leopold Stokowski conducting the All-American Orchestra. Yeah, this comes under a soundtrack category. Some soundtracks can be quite collectible. Others, not so much. Peter and the Wolf, generally in the $25 price range, even for the three-record set. Three record set. Even though it's the old 78 speed? Yeah. Yeah, age isn't a factor, really. Just because it's old doesn't necessarily mean that it's worth money. Oh. 
Okay, I'm going to break that to my wife. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> okay, okay, thank you, Skip. I uh, hope it's not. Hope it goes well for you when you break the news. Um, continuing our countdown of the top ten records worth a hundred dollars or more for February, we're now at number three with "Book, Book, Book of Love." The Monotones on Mascot Records. I wonder who wrote the Book of Love. Now, if you have a copy, an original would be on a yellow label, up to six hundred dollars. White label counterfeit. In the Ooh. price guides that we put out, we list all known counterfeits so you'll know whether you're getting the real thing. Look for the yellow label. All right, number two is that Bruce Springsteen song we just heard, later uh, covered by Manfred Mann, Blinded by the Light. Yeah, 1973 for Bruce on Columbia Records. This 45, Blinded by the Light, currently up to $1,000. Why is that so high? Well, you didn't sell very well. Of course, Manfred Mann had a big hit of it, but right. Bruce didn't. Yeah. It was just at the beginning of his career. He really hadn't taken off. It was one of the first releases on Columbia Records. The other one, the 45 by Bruce, at that time, Spirit in the Night, will sell up to about $4,000. Hello. All right, then. And number one on this countdown, and you're going to find him every every one of these countdowns, you're going to find this guy sooner or later. He's at number one on this one, Elvis. Elvis. Now, great Valentine song, Can't Help Falling in Love with You. Yeah. Big hit for Elvis. The original forty-five uh, worth up to about forty dollars, but RCA also released it as a seven-inch thirty-three, which means it's the size of a forty-five, but it plays at the speed of an album. And that mm. version with picture sleeve up to sixteen thousand dollars. Wow! Yeah, I'll, I'll bet even the biggest Elvis fan could part with that. Um, what was the thinking on doing a, a, a 45 size record but playing it at 33? What was what was that for? Well, it's kind of like uh, New Coke or the Edsel. It was a bad idea <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because they wanted to eliminate the speed idea. on the turntable. They said, let's get rid of that 45 speed yeah. and we'll make everything at 33. But by then, so many people had 45s, they wouldn't be able to play that the idea was abandoned rather quickly. You know what I think we might have talked about one time, and I, I'm. If I've asked you this before, forgive me, but I don't recall what the answer was. But speaking of bad ideas, there was that uh, experiment Chrysler did for a few years in the 50s with a uh, hi-fi record player under the dashboard, and they had to yes. play specific records, specially made records that wouldn't skip on that record player. Are those records uh, collectible for record collectors? I know they're very collectible for car enthusiasts who are right. restoring those cars. Well, it all depends on the collectability of the recording artist. And they would be basically the same value as the copies released in the stores uh, by that same recording artist. Okay. So it would be equivalent to the non-automotive version of that song or that record? Yep. Okay. Because I know when people restore those cars, a lot of them will say, we fixed the, I think it was called... Uh, highway hi-fi or something like that <laughs> but they can't no one a lot of people have the car but they don't have any of the records that the car plays and so yeah. those are very hard to come by yeah that was that uh, was not a good this. idea uh, well maybe a good idea but it didn't take off that's for sure yeah yeah definitely didn't um you had a couple of bonus uh things on this countdown we should mention here really quickly that are very collectible well there are a couple of categories within rock and roll that are very collectible rockabilly is one of them uh, 1954 on the Sun label. This guy was there when Elvis was there. Frank Floyd, rocking chair daddy, $4,000 right now. And again, mm. doo-wop, very collectible. Yeah. Look for the five keys, teardrops in my eyes, $7,000. Mm. 
Very nice. Yeah. Well, I hope you have a wonderful Super Bowl and Valentine's weekend. I hope a lot of people go to moneymusic.com and check out what you're doing there. We love it. And Thank you. um hope you'll come back again soon, John. Anytime, Jack. Thanks so much. All right. Enjoyed it. Proposing taking away their guns, and how would this work? Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against fellow Americans anymore. Fifth forty-one on five fifty and one zero seven one KTSA. Jack Riccardi. This half hour results on the Stevens Roofing JR poll. Um, I'm not planning on watching the uh, Oscars, but they announced today that the. Uh, Academy Awards ceremony in Los, in Los Angeles in April will not uh, require that Hollywood stars uh, show proof of vaccination. So to attend their glitzy, self-congratulatory ceremony, uh, they will not have to do what many of them believe you and I should have to do when we go out with our families or our spouses, show proof of vaccination. Hollywood Reporter breaking the news that the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences uh, will not have a vaccine requirement, but they will simply ask that uh, attendees get a negative test the day of the awards ceremony. By the way, the Academy requires its own employees to be vaccinated and prove it, but they will not require the beautiful people to be vaccinated. And I think that's good because the, the COVID knows when you're a celebrity the covid knows we're calling it the covid now the covid the covid also knows when you're an important politician that's why they don't wear masks they don't have to do what the rest of us have to do it's not that they're you know that, that, that they don't they don't care or they they want to get covid but the covid knows that oh that's a governor or that's a movie star i won't go on them I won't infect them. It's amazing what the COVID knows. I'm going to play this for you. This is really funny. I, it's a really obscure story, but you got to hear this. Uh, Cindy Rue is a Democratic state representative in Washington. She seems like a lovely person, but she's got some whack ideas. She's proposing a bill that would require the wearing of personal flotation devices uh, when you're in Washington State and you're on a canoe or a kayak or paddle boarding or whatever. So she's a, a nanny state Democrat. You know, you got to have your flotation device. And she wants uh, to explain that this will apply to almost everybody, but not everybody. Almost everybody, but she carved out an exception. Cut number five. This bill is very narrow for three different crafts. And um, because they are already required to carry those personal flotation devices on board, we thought the easiest and cheapest way to increase uh, survivability was to have people wear them. The few exemptions you see, including the tribal members, um, federally recognized tribal members exemptions, are based on responses from the community. These are situations where they have either extensive training or have traditionally very um, used to 
uh, our cold waters for eons, essentially, or are very closely supervised. And so, so the first part of the uh, are you hearing this? If you're food, Native American, you're exempt from the requirement of a flotation device because Native Americans know how to swim because they have eons of experience in the water. I don't think it's hereditary knowing how to swim. I'm pretty sure you don't inherit that, right? So you'll have to have the personal flotation device. You'll have to wear it. But if you're Native American, uh, we think you'll float just fine. But wait, she's not done. She also wants to explain um, her own unique ethnic relationship with the water. So here again is Democratic State Representative uh, Cindy Rue in Washington State, cut number six. I thought that was a great mechanism to allow the tribal members that do have a lot more access to the waters and traditional uh, training and um, activity, unlike many of the other diverse communities that don't, like Korean Americans. The only time I go out on the water, nowadays anyway, uh, is when my non-Korean American uh, son-in-law takes me out on the water. And so I thought that was a good way of uh, carving out very narrow okay. exemptions. So Native Americans float. Korean Americans sink like a rock, this lady says. I, I, I mean, are you hearing this? And again, she seems like a lovely person. I'm not trying to demonize her. But how do people get like this? And how do you know, based on your ethnicity, whether or not you will be okay or comfortable or floaty in the water? I, I don't think that's a thing. Now, getting back to the Native American part, I have to say, my first thought was Elizabeth Warren. Can we throw her in the water and see if she floats? Wouldn't that be the... I mean, that that's basically what we're, what we're hearing, right? Let's put her in the water, see what happens. A lot of us have wanted to throw her in the water for a long time. Now we have a reason. Um, what about other ethnic groups? Do you feel like you, in terms of your lineage, if you've, if you've researched your, your family tree, if you know where your people are from... Um, if you grew up in a coastal state, are you more buoyant? If you are descended from Vikings, they also have eons of experience on the water. Uh, what about that? I don't think that it's genetic. I'm pretty sure about this. I am not a scientist, but neither is Cindy Rue. On the JR poll, powered by Stevens Roofing, are you glad that Ripley's is leaving Alamo Plaza? Uh, they're... Uh, a break in the lease or those three tourist trap businesses across the street from the Alamo are breaking their leases and clearing the way in cooperation with the Texas General Land Office to, I guess, do a museum in that building. That building itself is kind of historic. Um, so what do you think about that? 83% say they're glad. 17% are not. Maybe they'll put those uh, exhibits somewhere else. I don't know. I haven't heard that yet. Tomorrow we'll have a new JR poll question. We get started at four. You can find the JR poll anytime at KTSA.com. You can also find this show anytime. So if the hours that we're on are not ideal for you or you keep getting interrupted in the afternoon, you can listen to us in the morning, listen to us on the weekends, late at night. Uh, full episodes of the show are available on demand at KTSA.com. Uh, tomorrow we'll be talking restaurants on the dish. We have a little fun with Valentine's Day weekend. We're going to talk about the Super Bowl. 
all the breaking news. You know, the Babylon Bee, the satire news site, they had a funny story today. I mean, these days, satire is pretty close to the truth. And this was a uh, satire story headlined, CDC director now says to just do whatever Texas did 12 months ago. The CDC has released new guidance for how states should deal with the pandemic by telling everyone to just go ahead and do what Texas did 12 months ago. Quote, yeah, we were pretty much wrong about literally everything. Sorry about that, said CDC, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. It would seem the official science has changed. We should now be doing whatever Texas has been doing for over a year. To be clear, this doesn't mean Texas is good. They're still bad. We just want to make sure that's understood. The gathered journalists then began to scream toward the sky and hyperventilate at the thought of returning to some degree of normalcy, as well as the thought of Texans actually being right about something. Walensky said, I recommend we just drop all this and pretend it never happened. So I think they would like to, but... Um, and we were uh, we were talking earlier about the um, the Academy Awards. The stars will not have to show proof of vaccination. It said um, further down in the Hollywood Reporter story, uh, the reason the Academy relaxed the standard is because there were several prominent industry figures, and I assume that would include, but not be limited to actors, right? who would not be able to attend. So if you would not be able to attend in the event that there was a vaccine mandate requirement, that I'm assuming means you don't have the vaccine. And that's something I've suspected for a long time. I I can't prove this, and it may sound crazy to you, and it will be the first thing I've said that sounds crazy to you. Maybe all of it sounds crazy to you, but I actually think that there are probably a lot of people, famous people, prominent people, uh, people in politics, people in entertainment, people who um, whose names are household names, people who are considered on the right side of things. You know, they're progressive, they're sympathetic to the Democrats, they're on the right sides of all the issues. They're in with the beautiful people who do not have this vaccine. And they're not going to ever say that. In fact, they may have even lied and said they do have it. You can do that. There's no way of knowing. But I'm pretty sure there are people who would find it politically inconvenient to say that they've done exactly what their own political opposites have done when it comes to this vaccine. We'll, We'll probably never know, but I do have a hunch. And we'll get back together tomorrow. We'll start here at 4. I'll see you on the radio on KTSA. 